morning. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of being uh, the pastor to students here at Christ Communities Olathe campus. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, thank goodness we're done with the three-week series or mini-series on sex in the first Corinthians series when I'm up here, right? Yeah, you and, you and me both. All right. But if you, seriously, if you haven't been here the last three weeks, you've missed some really provocative and really good preaching. All right, Paul, you know, we didn't choose to teach on sex and marriage. This is just where we found ourselves in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we went through chapter 6 and 7 looking at what Paul is teaching the church in Corinth and what he's teaching us today about God's design for sex and his design for marriage. And so if you missed it, I definitely encourage you to listen to the podcast. And so while we're transitioning from sex and marriage to this week to this idea of calling and next week what it means to be uh, a Christian and to be single or unmarried, Paul is still using all of these life situations to address one singular issue. And that issue is that regardless of your marriage, regardless of your job, regardless of your marital, marital status, your economic status, or your gender, all of them are secondary to who you are in Christ. And maybe, you're, maybe you hear that and you're nodding your head and you're like, all right, cool. Well, I'm good with that. I know that. It's 70 degrees out. Let's, let's be just done and call it, right? And head out and enjoy the day. I would love nothing more than just call it done and head out right now, believe me. But we need to go through this every single week. Because you and I and together, every day we fight this battle uh, this, of things in our lives causing our relationship with Christ to play second fiddle to everything else. Corinth, as we've heard in the last few weeks, um, it was a very diverse and a, and a really growing city. It was a city of opportunity. People there believed they had an opportunity to make a better life for themselves if they lived in Corinth. Jobs could be had, money could be made, and a name could be made for yourself. Biblical commentaries, uh, commentators describe it in this way. They said, Corinth, with its unique location controlling trade routes on the four points of the compass, inevitably attracted traders, freed slaves, entrepreneurs, and sailors. Here was a city where one could make one's fortune, rise in power and wealth and honor. So in a time in history where people often felt trapped um, in their position in society, where their present situation was often determined by the family that they were born into or the wealth that they had or didn't have. Corinth was a place, um, a unique place that provided an opportunity for upward social mobility. Corinth was a chance to better your life. And we live in a fantastic country. That kind of sounds just like the way we've just talked about Corinth, doesn't it? We live in a great country. We live in a fantastic city, and we live in a growing and thriving community here in Olathe. We're so blessed to live in a place where we're not limited by where you were born. You're not limited by the family you were born into. And for some of you, maybe that's better news than others, right? We're not limited by the family that we were born into or the income tax bracket of your parents. Sun Chang Ra, in his book, The Next Evangelicalism, wrote this, he said, the modern individual is above all else a mobile human being. 
My family and I, we've lived all over the place and all over the world. And when I read that statement, though, I know he's not just saying we're mobile ge geographically. We're a mobile people socially as well. The ability to make significant decisions that will increase your power, your influence, and your ability, and your ability to acquire what you believe, what you need, is the kind of people that we are. In America, you can be anything that you want to be. And in a lot of ways, it's a great thing. But that same opportunity can very quickly become a curse, can't it? The opportunity to always better your standing kind of fights against this idea of contentment, doesn't it? And I realize the whole idea of contentment is kind of a middle-class idea anyways, right? So many people in, in the world, contentment's an impossibility because they have so, so little. But here in our culture, in our community, we're always fighting against this idea that there's always a better job to be had another promotion to get, that next raise, that bigger house in the nicer community, the newer car that has Wi-Fi, the more luxurious vacation to go on. And I don't know about you, but my Facebook newsfeed is full of people going on cruises and sitting in cabanas on beaches right now, and I'm not jealous at all. We can, really, we can very quickly and easily become focused on upward mobility, though, can't we? And even worse than we connect our personal value to that upward mobility. And maybe you're here this morning or you know somebody who isn't upwardly social or upwardly socially mobile. And, and when you're in that position and you live in this land of opportunity... It can make you believe that if you're not getting that better job, if you're not getting the raise, if you're not taking the next step, then it must be just because I'm not working hard enough, or worse, I'm just not good enough. And then there's the spiritual reality of this way of thinking as well. Too often in, West, in, in the Western world, Christianity is characterized by the health and welfare gospel, the prosperity gospel. In other, parts of the, in other parts of the world, second and third world countries, Christianity is characterized by liberation theology. Both of them have in common this idea that if you give your life to Christ, your life will become better. Your life will change for the better. Follow Jesus and life gets easier. And there's a possibility that every day it's going to be sunny out and everybody will love everybody and it's all kittens and unicorns and rainbows or something. Or that's, what, or that's the way it can feel. And if it isn't that way following Christ, then you wonder, is it just because I'm not good enough or I'm not trying hard enough? And then you're left wondering, if Jesus isn't making my life better today, in the ways that I need him to, then what's the point? Why should I follow Jesus if my, look, if my life looks and feels the same way today as it did yesterday? And this is the tension that the Corinthians are facing. And it's the tension that we face and I face almost every day. The challenge to make my life better, to change my circumstances, and to find my value in that. 
And Paul says something very different to the Corinthian church and to us. He says, God has given you a calling. Stay where you are and rest in him. Paul says, God chose you not for what you will be, but for who you are right now. He chose you because he wants to know you as you are, and he wants to use your life the way it is right now. This, matter, this means no matter what your life looks like today, the moment you leave here today, no matter what job you go to, whether you work at home or elsewhere, no matter what zip code you are in or what school you go to, God wants to use you and use your life. So I think the big idea of this morning's passage is that God is with you where you are. And if God is with us where we are, then we can trust in three things. First, that God is with us no matter who we are. That God is with us no matter what work we do. And that when God is with us, his presence changes everything. So God is with you no matter who you are. Okay, let's get this out of the way. Paul starts this passage this morning talking about circumcision, right? And he says something that I think, I'm pretty sure, has 50% of us in the room breathing a sigh of relief, namely the guys. He says that when it comes to circumcision, you don't have to change a thing. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty happy about that. All joking aside, though, in Corinth, though, this is a pretty serious issue. Corinth was a multicultural city with a social ladder that everybody was trying to climb. And in the ancient world, there was usually two sets of dividing lines that everyone agreed on. The first was male and female. And the second one um, was slaves or free. You're on one side of the line or the other in those two categories. The Greeks, however, had an additional dividing line. And that was Greeks and everybody else. If you weren't Greek, you were a barbarian. But the Jews also had a similar dividing line. You were either a Jew and chosen, or you weren't, and you weren't chosen. And in Corinthian social circles, where upward mobility was desired, some of these dividing lines were very visible. And the way Corinth worked socially, the visibility of some of those dividing lines was made really obvious. You know, we go places, a lot of places to hang out and be seen and be heard here in Kansas City. In Corinth, where, where the majority of people, especially the men, spent their social time was at the public bath. Okay, doesn't sound that appealing to me. But you go to the public bath, you hang out, make small talk, and it becomes pretty apparent pretty quickly Who's who? Who's a Jew and who's a not a Jew and who's a Greek and who is not? Because if you're a Jewish, you were circumcised. So then everybody knew you were a Jew. And if you were a Jew and you were circumcised, your upward so- social mobility was cut short, so to speak. <laughs> and so from what we can infer from this passage and from other historical documents, is that there were some Jews in this community in Corinth that were going to great lengths to conceal their Jewishness. 
even going to the length of getting cosmetic surgery to hide the fact that they were circumcised. I've had surgery on my knee. I don't even want to go where they're thinking. Praise the Lord, right? What the Jews in Corinth are dealing with and trying to change, that's a whole other level. And yet there's this sense that they're experiencing some of their own medicine, aren't they? Far too often in the New Testament, we can read where Jews were telling non-Jews that if you really wanted to be Christian, it wasn't enough to just give your life to Jesus. You still had to get circumcised. That's how, in a sense, it's coming back to get them. And yet, what levels do you or I go to in order to fit in? Most of us aren't even aware of some of the things that we do just to fit in and become more acceptable to others. I'm embarrassed to admit some of the things that I probably do in order to fit in. And I know some of you who know me maybe a little too well are saying, yeah, I'd approve of you a little bit more, Chris, if you didn't wear bike shorts in public. But, you know, that's a whole other issue. But this past week, you know, a week and a half ago, uh, student ministry staff from all our campuses, we had uh, a training with and for parents on social media and technology and how to navigate it with our families. And, and this idea of what we do online to fit in was really front and center with us. It was a really apparent talking to everybody, regardless of their age and participation in social media and how old their kids were, that this is a challenge for all of us. For many of us, all we have to do is look at our social media presence or your Facebook feed or Twitter or Instagram, and you can very quickly get a picture of the things that we do and the things that we put out there in order to get approval or likes or comments or hearts from others, like on Instagram. I was talking to one parent um, earlier this week who said that they took a picture of their seven-year-old son at home, and they said, we're going to put, put this on Instagram. An hour later, he comes back into the room, and he says to his parents, did I get any hearts? Because if you like a picture on Instagram, you click the heart button to show that you like it or love it. What I found was really interesting that the, their son came back in and said, did I get any hearts? He didn't say, did the picture get any hearts. What we put online is an extension of ourselves in a lot of ways. And we connect our value to that. And this is what we're teaching our kids through our own behavior. He didn't learn that just independently. He learned it from what he saw adults in his life doing. And we all do this. We don't want to admit it, but we feel a twinge of pride and self-satisfaction, a bit of a rush when we put something out there online and it gets tons of responses and tons of likes and a lot of interaction and we're like, I'm important. Someone cares. We also don't want to admit that when we do put something out there and it doesn't get any comments or any likes or anything that we feel a little, we feel a little bit sad that no one cared to take the time, even the time to click. We all want to be heard, and we all want to be seen, and we all want to be valued by others. And I'm not saying that being seen or heard or valued is somehow bad. And Paul's not saying that either. 
But when we allow that to supersede our identity in Christ, then we have a problem. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. And Paul's being provocative when he writes that. Because he knows that the Jews that are listening will hear that and they'll say, wait, circumcision is one of the commands we're supposed to follow. But Paul is saying, there's a new kind of obedience. A new kind of obedience to the commands that we're supposed to follow. One that comes into being through the Messiah, through Jesus and through his spirit living in us. That's what counts. That kind of obedience. Paul's saying, don't let yourself be pressured into seeking to change your status one way or the other. In Jesus, we have all the status we will ever need. So what does this mean for you and for me? It means it doesn't matter how young you are. God wants to use you and he wants to use your life today. He wants to use, use your life in your school, in your family, on your sports team, or on your debate team. It, doesn't, it also means it doesn't matter how, how old you are or that you're getting older. You have gifts, experience, and wisdom that God wants to use today. And shameless student ministry and children's ministry plug now. Um, but as a student ministry pastor, and I'm sure Jennifer can resonate with this, I talk to people often who say, oh, I'm just too old to relate to kids. I wouldn't be effective. Wayne Rice, who is a middle school ministry expert of 40 plus years, says that young people are drawn to the oldest person who will take them seriously. Kids just want adults who take them seriously. Doesn't matter how old you are. God wants you God wants to use you no matter what your age, no matter what your income, no matter what your education or your zip code. None of those things matter to God. God chooses to use nobodies. This entire story is full of people that God chooses to use that look like nobodies to the rest of the world who then become somebodies. You are somebody because God chose you and he chose to use you. Not because of who you made yourself into. God is with you no matter what work you do. At this point in our passage this morning, Paul switches gears and he uses another metaphor that is even just as uncomfortable as circumcision, right? Paul switches from circumcision to slavery. Yay, Paul. This is a verse that's been misappropriated by a lot of people throughout history, even used to justify the existence of slavery in the past. And for the record, Paul is not condoning slavery in this passage. We know that Paul is against the ownership of of humans owning humans because it fundamentally contradicts a person's status in Christ. And we can know this by reading his letter to Philemon in regards to his slave Onesimus. It's likely in this passage that Paul does not denounce slavery outright because he's helping to create a counter-cultural movement in the name of Jesus 
and he's more concerned with modeling a Christ-centered lifestyle than he is taking on whole governments. But what Paul is saying in this passage is saying even the lowest form of work in the ancient world of being a slave had significance in God's eyes. The work of a slave had significance in God's eyes. And during the first century, your occupation, what you did to make a living, was often determined by what your parents did for work. If your dad was a fisherman, so were you. If your parents were slaves, so were you. It's only been really in the last hundred years that this idea that you can choose the job that you do to make a living has actually become a reality and a privilege for us to have. It's a very recent phenomenon. And in this passage, Paul also includes the phrase, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. Paul is not saying if you're a slave, you have to stay a slave. What he actually says in verse 21 is, he says, don't be concerned about it. Don't worry about your status. Here's how he, write, how he says it in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, where he's also writing to people who are slaves. Paul writes there, Whether, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And in Colossians, when he writes that, he's not just addressing slaves, he's speaking to you and me as well. How many of us have spent time and energy and precious emotion worrying about the fact that we don't get the recognition that we believe we deserve at work from our bosses? How many of us have been frustrated that we haven't got the raise that we think we deserve compared to our coworker who doesn't work quite as hard? How many of us are convinced our intrinsic worth as a person is directly connected to the work that we do? We all do. I do. You know, it's a weird thing. Anytime I meet with uh, other youth pastors from other churches or other pastors from churches and we're getting to know ourselves and each other and making small talk, it's really just playing this weird game, right? Hi, I'm Chris. What's your name? Oh, that's great. What church are you at? Oh, that one over there. Oh, okay, is that the one? No, that's over here. What denomination is that? Oh, it's this. Oh, okay, what do you guys think about that? Oh. It's all to get to the real question everybody wants to ask. So how big's your church? How big's your youth group? Play this weird game. So that we can, we're gauging ourselves against the competition so that we can feel better about ourselves if our church or our youth group is bigger than somebody else's. And we all do that with our jobs, don't we? We all find ways to compare so that we can feel better about ourselves and what we do. Regardless of what we do for work, whether in an office job or whether you're landscaping tomorrow, whether you work as a, at work staying at home or you have a salaried position or an hourly position, you're calling to Christ to be in Christ supersedes any work or vocational calling you might currently be in and therefore shapes and transforms everything that you do. So if Paul is saying that God can work even through the work of a slave, then he can work through anyone's job, can he? 
I, I learned this in, back in 2003. Um, after I graduated from seminary a long time ago, I spent about six or seven years working for a Christian uh, parachurch nonprofit called Young Life, an organization and a ministry that I dearly loved. I did relational-based outreach uh, to high school and middle school students through high school campuses and middle school campuses in California and in Wisconsin. And I loved it. I loved it as an organization. I loved how we did ministry. I loved the way we did camps. I loved the way that we presented Jesus and the gospel to kids who had never heard it before or never heard it in that way. I remember sitting and saying to people and saying to friends, I want to work for Young Life all my life. I love the organization. And then in 2003, I lost my job because a bunch of new funding we had had for our program in the area I was in was lost because grants weren't being given out after 9-11 anymore. And I suddenly found myself without a job and three months before we were due to travel to China to finish up our adoption. So I needed a job and I needed one fast. And so I took a job at Target. I became part of the red and khaki army. And I started as a department manager in housewares and domestics. Woo. I knew where all the towels were. <laughs> and I worked really hard, and I worked my way up because I needed more money. And uh, pretty soon, I became um, part of the store management team. And I worked really hard, and I learned a ton about managing a big team and managing a lot of payroll hours. And yet, a lot of my job on any given day involved fetching on-sale toilet paper who, for people who needed to fill their carts with it and sweeping up cat litter from the floor when bags would break and just get left or, or being yelled at by angry customers or, whoops, I mean guests, as they're known at Target, who wanted refunds for merchandise without receipts. I'm going to give you a tip, okay? If you buy something with cash and you don't have a receipt your money back. It's just the way it is, or was then, but that was my job. And it became very apparent to me very quickly that each day I had a choice to make. I went from doing a job that I loved to a job that I had to do. But in that moment, that job I had to do was the way to provide stability for my family, to pay the bills and keep the ship afloat. And as a result, I had a choice to make. To either resent that work or to see it as work that God had graciously provided to me and blessed me with. And it wasn't always an easy choice. But even to this day, I am still thankful for that job and what God provided for my family through it. I had another choice to make every day with that job as well. And it was the choice of whether I was going to let God work through me every day. Was I going to let him work through me as I straightened cereal boxes in the grocery aisle or reorganizing Lego boxes in the toy section or picking up that item that you thought you wanted and then decided you didn't want and left in a random aisle where that item didn't belong? <laughs> yeah, you know who you are. And when I say let God work through me, I'm not talking about sharing my faith at work or working in an ethical manner, although it may involve that, but it's not limited to that either. 
It was a choice to remember and believe and trust that in everything I did, no matter how mundane, no matter how mind-numbing, and no matter how unglorious to me, that God was receiving glory from it and working in it, and that God saw value in what I did. When we choose to believe and see our work as something, regardless of its worldly significance, and we see it as something that brings God glory and that God values, then we become free from the pressure of having to move up to that next position where God will then really receive glory. We get freed from that pressure to have to get that next job. And we're then free to serve others to see them as created in God's image and deserving our lo- of our love and our service. And we don't just see people as our coworkers or customers or clients, but we see them as fellow sons and daughters. In verse 22 of this passage, Paul writes, for he, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Paul says to the slaves of the Corinth church, when you're in Christ, you are free from men, and you who are free are slaves to Christ. Can you imagine how this must have been heard the first time when they were reading Paul's letter to the church? The slaves are sitting there next to their masters, and they hear, slaves, you're free. Elbows. Yeah. We're out of here, suckas. Right? And the masters are like, big bulging eyes. And then they hear, And you who are free are slaves in Christ. And then the real meaning of what Paul is writing sinks in to everyone, whether slave or free. As Christians, Christ frees us, frees them from the tyranny of our performance so that we can can pursue a life that is marked by serving others and Jesus and not marked by serving ourselves. When you become a Christian, you work and serve for an audience of one. He becomes our one and only master. And through him, we're free to love and serve others as we love and serve others, just like Jesus spoke in Matthew 25. When we love and serve others, it's like we're loving and serving him. And yes, our our motivations are often going to get mixed up, aren't they? But the more we understand the power of the cross of Jesus dying willingly for us when he didn't deserve to, the more we understand the power of the cross, the more we will be able to live this way. So what does this mean for us today? Students and kids, it means that your work is going to school. Ugh, right? Yeah, your work is doing something that you often don't want to do so that you can do something you think you might want to do someday. Yeah, I know, it's hard. Adults, we can help students by remembering we didn't always love school either and empathizing. But students, it's not just learning stuff that other people think is important for you to learn, but that you think you'll never use later in life. School is an important part of finding out who God has created you to be and the work that he has created for you. There's no more important work for you than finding out who God has created you to be. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you have a job that you can't stand. Maybe you feel like one of the slaves that uh, Paul was preaching to. You feel trapped in a job that you can't stand that makes you work for the weekend. Mother Teresa, who knew a lot about working hard and also knew a lot about slavery, once said, work without love is slavery. You may not love what you do. You may not love what you do, but love the fact that we worship a God and love a God that is and can and wants to use your work. God doesn't look at you or your work and think it's insignificant, unimportant, and unusable. Your work is important to him, regardless of what it is. If you're here this morning and you love your job, congratulations. I love my job most of the time. And in the times that I don't love it, it's not because of the kids. That was supposed to be a joke, but... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> if you love your job, thank God. Thank Him every day. Your work is a blessing from God. Make sure that while you're loving your work, you're also allowing God to work through it. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you do significant, valuable, and some of the most thankless work around but it's also work that God has called all of us to. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7, we read, um, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is important work that he has given us. If you're a stay-at-home parent, God is working powerfully through you and your work in the lives of your children. Thank you for the significant work that you do and how God is working through you. When we allow God to transform our work, no matter what kind of work we do, our work can become more than work. It can become our vocation. Wendell Berry, who is a contrarian farmer author that I love, who lives in Kentucky, wrote... The old and honorable idea of vocation is simply that we each are called by God or by our gifts or by our preference to a kind of good work for which we are particularly fitted. Implicit in this idea is the evidently startling possibility that we might work willingly and that there is no necessary contradiction between work and happiness or satisfaction. When God is at the center of our work, God and Him working through our work become what, becomes what brings us happiness and satisfaction. Then we can trust that our work has value no matter what we do because it is the work that God has given us. Last, last point this morning. God is with you and as a result, his presence changes everything. This passage that we're looking at this morning finishes with something that would have been a little bit jaw-dropping for the Corinthians to hear and should be equally compelling to us today. 
Paul wrote, For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. In saying that slaves are free in Christ and free people are slaves to Christ, Paul is saying all social status is pointless. All social status in the eyes of others is pointless. He says when you're in Christ, your social status in the eyes of others doesn't matter because Jesus is first. Through Jesus and the blood of of the cross, our freedom was purchased and we are his. And when we become his, our sins aren't just paid for and canceled. We aren't just ushered into his family. We aren't just given the promise of a kingdom that will come someday in the future. We're given a whole new way of seeing the world around us and a new way of living in it. The world, and when I say the word world, world, I mean anything that isn't a part of Christ's kingdom today. The world wants us to believe that you're only as good as you were yesterday. You're only as good as your last performance, your last test grade, your last raise, your last promotion. You're only as good as your current circumstances. Henry Nowen, in his beautiful book, A Life of the Beloved, says, aren't you like me hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you the final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, this idea, this course, trip, job, country, or relationship will fill my deepest desire? But as long as you are waiting for the mysterious moment, for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this is the compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy, but at the same time makes us wonder whether we're getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. That is not the way that God has made us for. Jesus is our hope, and he gives us our deepest desire. Our deepest desire to be loved and to be his beloved. In him we find our rest, our hope, our value, and our worth. In Jesus, we're free from the pressure to perform, to live up to the standards of others, to have to get that next promotion. We're free from having to justify our life by doing something extraordinary. Because Christ did that extraordinary thing by living a perfect, ordinary life. Now you're free from having to disguise who you are and where you come from in order to belong. You're free to finally, fully belong. In the fullness of your ethnicity, of your culture, of your personality. In a fullness that you have yet to discover and we may not fully yet discover until he returns and we are made new. Because Christ died to tear down walls of hostility and competition between cultures and between people and between us. He made the ultimate sacrifice so that, we could, so that he could call us home from exile to eternal rest. The Christian calling 
doesn't change where or how we're walking. It changes who we are walking with. And this freedom, this rest, it begins here. It begins today. It begins now. You don't have to change your condition. You don't have to change your social circumstances or your job. You don't have to fabricate or create your own calling. In whatever you're doing, wherever you are working, no matter the words you speak or the language you speak, what you do from day to day, Christ invites you to walk with Him. Will you come?